Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say that we have Colin Woodard on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America. Europeans are fond of saying, at least fond of saying to me, that there is no American nation. And to a certain extent, of course, this is True, Americans come from all over the place. We are a nation of immigrants. But as Colin Woodard shows in American Nations, there are, in fact, nations in North America. He identifies 11 of them. Some of them you probably know, like the Deep South and New England and the Left Coast, and others you may not. The book is quite surprising in the way that it reorients the ethnic, I guess I would call it, geography of the United States. If you are an American and you read this book, you will learn a little bit more about who you are. If you are not an American and want to know more about North America, then I counsel you to read this book because you will learn quite a bit about the different kinds of North Americans. Collins analysis does a lot to explain many of the things that have happened in American history from the founding of the Republic through the Civil War to the present. And in that way, it's a very timely book, particularly as we are entering an election year, I guess is what it's going to be. I really enjoyed talking to Colin today. So without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Colin. Hello, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? I'm fine. And yourself? I'm very well. Thank you for asking. Today we have Colin Woodard on the show, and we'll be talking about his wonderful new book, American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America. I guarantee you, that if you live in North America, you will find this book to be very eye-opening. You may think you are, for example, as I did, a Midwesterner and a Kansan. That's where I'm from, Kansas. Uh, Or I live in Iowa now, or I'm an Iowan. But uh, what I learned from Colin's book is that that this is, to some degree, false. I I don't really know who I am. Actually, that doesn't strike me as very odd, (laughs) that I don't know who I am, because I think many people don't. But in this case, I didn't really understand uh, how to put it, to what culture I belonged in the United States. And Colin does a really terrific job in this book of sketching the various regional cultures, and they're very large regional cultures, uh, in the United States, explaining their origins and explaining how they work into uh, North American life. And as I should say, it's, it's not just the United States here. We, we also deal with uh, Canada and Mexico quite extensively, which is a great virtue of this book. Uh, it isn't just focused on the United States, but it does take North America as its as its kind of um, as its topic, and that, and that again is a is a wonderful thing to see in a world where the United States can only think about the United States. So, anyway, Colin, I congratulate you on the book. Why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I'm a uh, I'm a journalist and writer full time, and have been uh, throughout my career self employed. Um, my uh, my career started in Eastern Europe and the Balkans. I was a East European history major in as an undergrad, and um, because of my age, uh, I was in 
starting in university when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, perestroika and glasnost reforms are going on. So I was involved in in that because it seemed like something big might happen. And lo and behold, during my junior year uh, abroad in Budapest, Hungary, um, I was fortunate enough to be present in most of the right countries at the right moments to witness the uh, the whole unfolding and wow. collapse of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe. So wow. uh, that uh, I wanted to keep seeing what was going to happen in this these places. Um, it was clear that the uh, centuries of uh, of history, uh, which had been on the deep freeze during the communist period, were unthawing, and some of it was going to unthaw unpleasantly. Well, so I, uh, well I came back and uh, and. Um, was there uh, the, the, the next summer on a research grant as an undergrad still in Romania and then went back and was studying there all through. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I, was, I went back there and was a journalist there uh, based in Budapest and covering everything from Moscow and Petersburg on down to Istanbul and uh, watching it all unfold for most of the 1990s. Wow. Um, went back, I uh, was in graduate school for, and, and then went back and covered the uh, aftermath of the uh, Bosnian War just after Dayton mm-hmm. and uh, continue to go back to that region. But um, I'm a, a foreign correspondent is really where my, my career and, and foundations were. And then came back to the United States uh, in the late 90s and was based in D.C. and was a, a, a roving global affairs reporter um, covering some stuff in D.C. for the Christian Science Monitor, mm-hmm. um, but also traveling regularly. You know, every, every month I was somewhere else. I uh, did a book <laughs> about the... Uh, the Collapse of the um, World's Large Marine Ecosystems was my mm-hmm. first book, which drew, it was, it was about people, too, and how it was affecting communities. I, I, I spent a year traveling everywhere from Antarctica to these little micro-states in the middle of the Pacific that um, believe they're going to disappear because of rising sea levels mm-hmm. to um, Newfoundland and the Grand Banks and the Black Sea and uh, learned to scuba dive and was in the Belize lucky devil, you. all over the place. A fascinating project to do, um, and, but also a sort of global project. It was drawing in not just environment and science, but bonding it to sort of journalism, history, sociology, and sort of the relationship of different communities and people to the resource that they were seeing falling apart. Mm, liberal, um, so, arts, liberal arts in practice. This is the, <laughs> my, my entire life is the liberal arts, yeah, applied liberal arts major. Applied kind liberal of arts. Yeah, I'm, I'm everywhere. So I uh, followed that up with a, a, a book on my home state, which is Maine, and the coast of my home state, which is a place with a very um, identifiable um, and um, idiosyncratic local culture. Um, somewhat suspicious of outsiders, particularly if they happen to be from our neighbor, Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> and this is an exploration of our cultural identity and also our marine resources. So it was drawing together the real um, history of what shaped our unusual culture that you know I, I'm from and, uh, and where it sort of put us today. In, in a sense, it's American nations writ small, mm-hmm. um, but a, uh, I'm happy to say an extremely popular book uh, in this little part of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, was, that was when I was first confronting U.S. colonial history in some detail. And uh, it, it was to, to probe Maine's identity and its relationship to um, the Massachusetts Puritan experiment and, and annexation and sort of post-colonial history that it has required really delving into the colonial period in our country. You know, I'd been busy 
dealing with you know the, the Byzantines and Habsburgs when I was right. an undergrad. So you know, I, I figured I knew Maine and New England history at least because you know we we had to take that in school. We even had an entire <laughs> entire unit in junior high school in Maine history. Oh my gosh! I mean, the uh, as as you and many listeners of this podcast know, the colonial. Um, period in American history is absolutely nothing like the sort of received um, mm. mythological version that at least in the 70s and 80s I received in public school. You know, that, that version where, you know, the, the pilgrims, you know, the Mayflower arrives and disgorges the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock and, whoa, fast forward, it's the French and Indian War and the Revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, wow, what happened to that 150 years in between? Mm-hmm. It tends to be skipped over because if you're trying to tell a history of a place called the United States and somehow um, tie the creation of a unitary you know, superpower, you know, united from sea to sea, indivisible, yada, yada, to the colonial period, it's an impossible task because yep. um, it, 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 nothing adds up. It's mm-hmm. confusing and messy. And in fact, uh, you know, as, as the current book talks about, there's, there's, it's the wrong way of looking at our history and our mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, that was when I was first really digging into it and realizing, you know, we're really you know, there are several Americas, and I, the, the book I followed up on. In between all this, I'm doing journalism, all sorts, and traveling mm-hmm. back to Eastern Europe and covering the Icelandic, you know, financial collapse and Korea in '97, and you know, doing roving the planet, going to Greenland, and mm-hmm. you know, doing stuff. So this is part of my mix. But then the the next book project, uh, the previous book, which came out in 2007, was a, um, I guess, my first. Um, back to archives and vellum kind of history. <laughs> um, this is on the great Caribbean pirates. The, mm-hmm. There's this one gang, it's called Republic of Pirates, and there's this one um, gang of pirates who are responsible for 90% of all that pop culture, you know, imagery about pirates. Mm-hmm. You know, these arg, lovable rogue, you know, you know who, are, who are going off to, you know, live a married life in a short one, and it's all sort of about freedom, and somehow, even though they're, absolute criminals and terrorists we seem to like yeah, them you know, where did yeah. that come from there is that there's that criminal and terrorist part that people forget yeah they see but johnny that, depp and they exactly don't, yeah. but why why is that the case and it turns out um because they were heroes at the time yeah. and in fact if it, 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 there was this one clique of of guys surrounding blackbeard and uh sam bellamy was part of it steed bonnet mary reed and bonnie um Calico Jack Rackham, uh, the, the, much of our pantheon of pirates happened to all be associated with one another, operated as one clique for just a five-year period out of the Bahamas. And they were so successful and so unusual and unlike previous generations of pirates and the pirates who have come since, that they had a sort of lasting resonance. They were mm-hmm. heroes at the time and for mm-hmm. Good reason, actually. So it's a, fa- a fascinating story that's totally unlike, again, the received wisdom and was set in the colonial period. But I was originally doing it because I was trying to figure out, you know, how could you pull a mass audience into this colonial period of American history that mm-hmm. nobody understands? And it's like, well, dinosaurs won't work, but pirates <laughs> work. So I, I was just going to use the pirate. I my own devices. But- We've got to talk after the show about how to work dinosaurs in somehow because they yeah. really are gra- a great hook. <laughs> so, so, um, but, but the pirate story ended up being so absolutely unusual and unlike the received wisdom that, you know, I ended up getting hooked on there on this particular pirate groupings, actual story. And this, to reconstruct what these people's lives really were, because the, 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 the mythic history and the secondhand history has come to dominate things. It was this, you know, incredible treasure hunt of 
you know, spreadsheets and triangulating data and going to the, mm. the National Archives in Kew outside of London where most of the stuff from the English-speaking colonial world ended up, most of the originals, and finding, tracking um, the Royal Navy captains of obscure uh, sh- uh, ships stationed in the Americas whose job was to collect intelligence and track these guys. Nobody had really ever looked at their stuff, at the, the original letters of these captains of small sloops of war that happen to be in interesting locations at interesting times who are collecting intelligence. And you can track where they were because the ship's logs are identifying their longitude and latitude and what the weather was like. And mm-hmm. you know, you start, they encounter other people who end up being additional sources. And anyway, I was able to piece together um, a far more... Um, you know, detailed picture than people had previously seen. I got very hooked on that digging in the archives and finding mm-hmm. what no historian has seen before kind of stuff is an awful lot of fun. And gosh, you go to the National, I mean, try to go to the, you know, the Library of Congress and ask them to see something from the 19th century. And, you know, they give you a background check and send you through a scanner right. and put white gloves on you. And, yeah. you know, don't you dare breathe on this thing. Not so at the National Archives in Kew. I mean, you, you ask for Captain Woods Rogers, who circumnavigated the, you know, the world in 1713, his original boxes of his logbooks still you know, stained with the, the, the salt water that splashed over the rail while he was writing them, you know, trying to go around the, the, the southern tip of uh, South America. They just hand them to you. Oh, here you go. Knock yourself out. You know? Oh, aren't you worried I'm going to hurt these things? Oh, that stuff's from the early 1700s. We've got loads of it out back. You know? we're, we're worried about the Magna Carta, you know. You know, they, they don't consider it old, if you know what I yes, mean. Yes, so I do. It's pretty wonderful to be able to be given intimate access to things like that. And I mean, they're wonderfully efficient and stuff, but the um, the sort of um, um, democracy of access is 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 pretty wonderful for yeah. some coming from the new world. Yeah. So, I mean, that's my my book career, and I you know I'm I'm based in in Maine now, which is where I'm from, and uh, until recently, I've been still traveling and doing foreign correspondenty things. Uh, but of late have been digging in, uh, becoming, for, for lack of anyone else doing it around, and I have the skill set, I also on the side, I'm sort of the, the uh, investigative journalist, uh, you know, the feared Cy Hirsch figure in Maine, mm-hmm. um, because there's nobody doing it, and all the newspaper staff's been cut back, so it falls on me to, um, to, to, to be the watchdog, uh, keeping track of our governor, and posting mm-hmm. and digging up campaign finance disclosures, and, and elections, and, you know, all that nitty-gritty so sort of like going to the National Archives in Kew, except now it's sort of the current affairs equivalent, mm-hmm. you know, hitting people with records requests and exposing appalling relationships between lobbyists and politicians and legislation and all mm-hmm. that, all that fun stuff, which is, again, not unrelated to the, uh, to the historian's quest and in my liberal arts framework, you know, mm-hmm. keeps frenetically uh, grabbing disciplines and slamming them together. <laughs> well, it sounds like a pretty good gig and definitely a public-spirited one. I think the people of Maine uh, probably would thank you for what you're doing. I, I know uh, I would if I were in Maine. Roughly two-thirds of them. The other, the other <laughs> third would like to... <laughs> Lynch you? Uh, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Send you to Massachusetts? <laughs> yes, perhaps. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, Colin, tell us how you came to write this book. Uh, so, um, as, as we've discussed here, I believe that the colonial period was, you know, is essential to people understanding our history and what the lesson really boils down to, to me. And, 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 you know, I've been thinking about this for, you know, for 20 years, you know, I've been thinking about the deep fissures, culturally speaking, that don't match state or international boundaries in the Balkans and Eastern Europe, which, um, 
often tragically shape their history. But at least, at least in the Balkans and Eastern Europe, people know their history for better or worse. Here, the, the same cultural forces are affecting political behavior and, uh, and the national discussion and indeed today the national paralysis. And they always have these, these deep fissures between regions. And they're the, they all grow out of the fact that the original clusters of colonies and I think this is the great lesson of colonial history that's missed, were settled as essentially as separate countries. I mean, mm-hmm. they weren't coming to create an America. They were coming to create, you know, the, a, a world, a Chesapeake world and a, a, a New England world and a, and a, and a Dutch-founded uh, uh, experiment uh, on Manhattan Island that spread up the Hudson River and, mm-hmm. the, and in Barbadian planters from the West Indies and the lowlands of the South and so on and so forth. Those were the were, were separate experiments, um, each with their own intents and ideals and um, societal goals and expectations and models. They were separate regional cultures or indeed nations in the European sense of being stateless nations and people sharing a, or believing they share a common culture and rituals and all that. I mean, it, it, they have the, the, the distinctions and the characteristics between them are as profound and I would say um, more disparate than between the countries of the European Union. I mean, it, there, there is very little that the Deep South as a regional culture and Greater New England as a regional culture can agree on. And in fact, they never have. Yeah. And that fractured nature, because they expanded, that they developed through much of the colonial period in rather profound isolation from one another, and they ended up expanding through the early 19th century in mutually exclusive bands, both for environmental reasons and because of soil and what crops would grow that each folk, you know, folk way was accustomed to, but also because they were actively avoiding one another. Mm-hmm. They found each other um, impossible to live with, so they were mm-hmm. self-sorted. And uh, because of that, there's, you know, they sort of laid down the cultural DNA, as it were, of separate sections of the eastern half of the country. And in the uh, southern rim, the, the, the northern borderlands of New Spain, um, uh, did the same for parts of the American Southwest. But, you know, more on that later. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the, the, that's the, the, essentially, if you roll that forward through our history and you start recognizing these fault lines and, and this paradigm, it makes everything a lot clearer. Mm-hmm. And by everything, I mean the, the battle lines, regionally speaking, and the way the American Revolution was fought, the arguments at the First Continental Congress, the, uh, you know, the, the contradictions within the U.S. Constitution of 1789, the War of 1812's um, regional divisions, the, and the run-up to the Civil War. I mean, people go to great intellectual gymnastics to create a highland south and a lowland south and a border north and a border south. No, it's, they're separate regional cultures that don't follow the state boundaries that mm-hmm. behaved with incredible internal consistency. Mm-hmm. And indeed, right up to today, which is what most interviewers are interested in, because it can plays out on the, the Blue County, Red County maps and mm-hmm. in our culture wars since the 60s. And it, it's to me, it's the key to really understanding who we are and why we have these um, circular arguments about key issues, about what American values are and have been and should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, I quite agree with you. I think that most people who have traveled around the United States extensively and lived in various parts of it, and I have lived in all of them, know this intuitively, that in fact these regional cultures exist and they are quite distinct and um, different from one another. Um, 
I don't think it's well reflected in the press. But I think people know it in their bones. Yeah, I think subconsciously everyone's aware of this, and they're also aware that they don't follow state boundary lines. No, they I mean, do not. They every Marylander yeah. knows there's three Marylands and can probably tell you exactly where the divisions are. I mean, you know that there are two Kansases. There are definitely two Kansases, yes. Kansans know that, and yeah. Texans you know, may talk up a thump you know, their, you know, their chest about Texas but, and know that the capital's in Austin, but they're all aware that Houston and Dallas and San Antonio are the hubs of three very different Texases. Yeah, yeah. You could go on, you know, upstate Illinois and downstate and on, yeah, on you right. go. Upstate yeah, Northern Illinois. California, Southern California. Yeah, and especially... Western Mass, Eastern Mass. Yeah, less so if you really get down because the Yankee culture is yeah. strong. But yeah, at another time, you know, another resolution level, you can go down to the conflicts between Maine and Massachusetts. But hey, in, in the end, yeah. we were... We were conquered and absorbed into the Puritan experiment mm-hmm. and have more in common with our, 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 um, our imperial brethren in Massachusetts Bay than we do, yeah. uh, you know, we have more in common than we do with any other part of the yeah. country. So yeah. you, you see it in our architecture and our uh, political institutions and our cultural values, you know, whether yeah. we like it or not. <laughs> yeah. My wife is from Massachusetts, and as I say, I'm from uh, what, what I call the plain states. That's what I always call People call it the Midwest, but I say, no, not really. It's the plain states. That's what I always called it. And, and we have a, a quite different, um, let's say, uh, a cultural habits or cultural instincts. They're, they're, very, they're really very different. I, I hadn't realized it until um, we had kids, and then it really came into play, how, how different our assumptions were about the way things should be done and what the kind of realities of the world were. But, you know, we work them out, but they're very different. Interesting, yeah. I, yeah. I would imagine that might play out on, on a family level. Yeah, it, it, it really has. It's, it's, a, it's, a peculiar, it's a peculiar thing. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about these regions and their histories. Uh, unlike most reviewers, I'm not entirely interested in what's going on today because this is, after all, new books in history. So let's talk about some of the origins, the origins of some of these places. And again, I said in the introduction, I was particularly pleased to find out that you had um, included all of North America, which is very nice. So let's talk about El Norte. What is El Norte? Sure, that would be the first one, chronologically mm-hmm. speaking, of the of the Euro-American cultures to be laid down, and indeed starting in the late 1500s. It's uh, the, the, the Spanish borderlands, the, the northern frontiers of, of Spain's empire in the Americas. Um, today, Americans are you know, well aware that the southwestern bits of, uh, of the country, the uh, southern California, the southernmost parts of Arizona, most of New Mexico and the, um, the, the southern strip, more or less, of Texas are a place apart where Hispanic cultural norms and language and food ways and stuff are dominant, and that's pretty obvious. What's less understood by Americans is that that region, including the northern tier of provinces in Mexico, the, the northern Mexico and, and what has become part of the United States, have always been looked upon by Mexicans from the rest of the country as a place apart. Mm-hmm. That people from the north, you know, Norteños are you know, stereotyped as being uh, more independent and work-centered and uh, and um, democratically inclined than people from Central Mexico and uh, and the South. And the um, indeed the people from the north were spearheading the Mexican Revolution and many other reform movements throughout the country's history. They're, they've um, often resented their relationship with the rest of Mexico and the Mexican center, and because of that were involved in numerous secession movements during the Mexican period. Mm-hmm. You know, the 
Republic of the Rio Grande and indeed the Republic of Texas. Republic of Texas I mean, yeah. the Republic of Texas, uh, when it um, uh, um, achieved independence from Mexico, it wasn't just Austin and, and, and other <laughs> you know, Anglos, in quotes, who were leading it. It was the entire um, Norteño um, Spanish-speaking elite of mm-hmm of Texas were with them. They were yeah. partners. They yeah. all wanted to secede from Mexico. It's just that the, the Spanish-speaking elite in Texas was not planning on being annexed by the United States. They were going to be a third state, a buffer state between the two, because they'd, they'd always been that. Economically, in many ways, they were oriented to and had similarities um, with, with the U.S. more so than Mexico in a lot of the ways that they conducted themselves and their trade patterns throughout their history. So it it's a separate culture from both countries and, and, and a distinct one with a long history of regional um, uh, identity. Mm-hmm. And today, it's, uh, it so happens, it's, uh, I think it has a lot of parallels to Germany during the Cold War, you know, a, a single culture divided by a political boundary and a large wall. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's the, uh, the, the, the fact that um, you know, a lot of people worry, you know, Samuel Huntington was extremely concerned about the, the threat to American identity by the r- rapid increase in, in Mexican immigration, particularly in the, uh, in the southwest of the country, and that this was going to undermine and destroy core American, you know, alleged Anglo-Protestant culture mm-hmm. and values because nobody was assimilating and taking on. They, they didn't need to take on the English language and our culture because they could live embedded in an entirely Mexican culture and institutions um, within our own country, and that this was threatening. But the thing is, in that part of the world, um, it was it was founded and and set up um, from New Spain. It's it had always been that way. It was only during a century or so long interlude where it was conquered as an imperial project, and in much of it, sort of race based caste system was imposed, where uh, Hispanic people weren't allowed to participate equally in politics and such. I mean, look at that, you know, that movie Giant was all about that yeah. and the, the decomposing of that system. You know, it, that was a um, anomalous period in the middle of it, much mm-hmm. like, in, you know, you could draw parallels with New France, with Quebec. Same thing. It was conquered and for a, a long period of time, it was difficult if you were Francophone to pr- participate actively in the British dominated, uh, um, you know, lower Canada. But after the 1960s, they sort of were able to seize controls of, of the culture and the politics. And similarly, the same thing has sort of happened in El Norte. So that's that in a, in a long nutshell. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's interesting you put it in the way you put it, because it does, I think, cast uh, American political activity, and particularly the, what we might call the activity of the Fed, that is Washington and whoever controls it, in a different light. Because these attempts at Americanization, for example, after the Mexican-American War, were really led... Uh, t- by an alliance between what I guess we might call Anglos in El Norte and Washington itself. And this occurs again and again in American history. At some point, the Fed gets very interested in dampening these regional differences. And uh, from the perspective of, uh, the, the, of Washington, this is an attempt to uphold American values somehow or protect America's borders. And from the perspective of the people who are uh, bearing the brunt of Washington's um, attempt to... Uh, quote-unquote, Americanize these regions, it just seems like some sort of regional war. And this is particularly true in the South, where, uh, you know, it, these people were really looked at as, as, for, as foreigners. These foreigners are coming down here, and they're trying to change our culture. I think the same thing, to some extent, is felt in, 
in El Norte today. I mean, anybody who's been down there knows that it's quite different and distinct than the rest of the United States. It just yeah, isn't was, like uh, every place else. Yeah, and I lived in Brownsville, Texas for a year and a right, half, yeah. which is about as um, – as, uh, it's one part of El Norte where there's always been an overwhelming 90% um, majority Hispanic. Yeah, you know, been, yeah Brownsville. They settled yeah. there and, and, and run the, have run the show the, almost the entire time. And they have great today. beaches. <laughs> they do have great beaches, absolutely. A, a, yeah. different atti- a different attitude towards littering than we yeah. have in New England. No, they but do. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, no, it's true. It's very different. So let's, uh, um, let's move on to the, the, the second uh, oldest, I think, I guess, I'm not sure, but also culturally very distinct because it has a linguistic difference, and that is uh, New France. Absolutely. What's uh, the, the, the settled um, a few years, 1604 was the original attempt at settlement, and uh, it's uh, from the times of Champlain onwards. It's an unusual culture. Yes, it was settled by the French, but it, um, Champlain had the idea that, uh, that uh, the French settlements and the indigenous people they encountered in the St. Lawrence Valley and, and, and what's become New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, the Acadia, um, were, were to interact as partners. And while he was coming from, from the, you know, the, the France of the, the era of the Sun King, you know, Louis XIV, mm-hmm. with a centralized uh, um, aristocratic system, and indeed internally, his sub, you know, within the, the, the French camps, uh, the, the lords and aristocrats ate one set of food and didn't even seem to know <laughs> the names of the rest of the people. But they treated the, the um, Indian chiefs as their co-equal mm-hmm. aristocrats. And invited them for great feasts, and mm-hmm. they would be served by the by the peons. But that was the model was a model of cultural exchange and on equal participation level, and that um, they they would work cooperatively with these groups and had seemed to have little problem with taking on and um, sharing uh, cultural uh, elements and technologies, and even having the sons of aristocrats go take uh, wives from the chiefs' families and create. Um, cross-racial unions at a time you know, where, where many of the other regional cultures would have looked at this as the most appalling thing you could possibly do. Mm-hmm. The, the, the French experiment in North America embraced many of those things. Now, the, mm-hmm. the result was uh, a resounding defeat for Louis XIV's original project to just recreate um, the French feudal model in the St. Lawrence Valley. Instead, what they ended up with was a hybrid culture blending the folkways of of northern French peasantry and the Ancien Regime with those of the indigenous people they encountered in the, in the St. Lawrence Valley, a hybrid culture mm-hmm. um, wh- where people did not um, want to stay and, uh, and work uh, their, uh, their lord's land. A lot of them would just run off and, and go native, as it were, go mm-hmm. join the Indians in their camps and, mm-hmm. and become um, woodcutters and have, uh, have uh, families that were... Uh, the, 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 it turned out that the folkways of many of these peasants and the values of, of the Aboriginal people they came among had a lot of similarities. They got along pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so you had this sort of blending of cultures, and uh, they brought on board this idea, which has become a very Canadian idea that comes from New France, of the, this sort of um, continuous negotiation, that you, uh, the, you work towards cooperative solutions in a uh, negotiation and dialogue without end. Mm-hmm. which is a, a sort of stereotypical Canadian thing today, but was brought forth um, from the culture of New France and sort of has infected uh, Canadian federal politics in a, mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. profound way. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, very different from France itself. Um, mm-hmm. 
in the culture that evolved there. And again, like we mentioned, it you know it was it was conquered after the French and Indian War, um, and a became a sort of subject part of the British Empire. And it's only since the 1960s, as in El Norte, with a quiet revolution in Quebec, that um, that uh, the new French culture has seized full control over its destiny in politics, mm-hmm. and indeed created in Quebec a sort of nation-state in waiting that almost seceded several times mm-hmm. and instituted um, very uh, um, distinct, uh, the, what they considered a superior social model of, um, of civilization and uh, strong um, welfare state and strong state involvement in uh, private enterprise, including big energy companies like Hydro-Quebec. And it's a very um, Europeanish model that was completely alien to Canada at the time it happened and has since uh, had an effect on some of the other parts of Canada. But nobody would argue it's not a distinct society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, this still exists in the United States to some extent in Louisiana, and I'm thinking particularly of the way in which, and I know very little about this, I confess, the way in which uh, politics in Louisiana is structured. They have a kind of an odd, it's odd in the American context, yeah, they got a parish system. Yeah, the Absolutely. parish system. That that uh, we don't have that. We didn't have that in Kansas. What what is the parish system? Well, it's uh, they still use elements of a Napoleonic code yeah, in their legal system right. as opposed yeah. to English common law. I mean, the 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 new French enclave um, has not had control over the levers of power of of all of Louisiana since uh, since the Louisiana Purchase. I mean, it was purchased. It was part of France, which is why when the British decided to ethnically cleanse the French out of, uh, of the, uh, province of, the defeated province of Acadia, which is uh, outside of Quebec and in what's now New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. They, they evicted many of the people, mm-hmm. and a lot of them, the refugees, ended up in French Louisiana, and which quickly ended up changing hands and becoming part of the United States. Yep. But they, um, they have had an influence, but they don't fully control all the levers of power in Louisiana or anywhere else because the immigration from the Deep South and Greater Appalachia um, ended up outnumbering them, particularly the Deep South. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. New Orleans is kind of an interesting blend of Deep Southern and New French culture and uh, undoubtedly the uh, a Greater Caribbean culture, which this book doesn't try to tackle mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you've been down there, it's a very distinct place. It's, it's, oh, like, it's, not, it's not like any other place in the United States. I mean, I, I just don't think the people who haven't traveled a lot realize this. Maybe they do. I don't know. But it's, New Orleans is so different from any other city in the Deep South, yeah. too. It's it, just, oh, it is. <laughs> in, yeah. in a big way. Yeah, it Absolutely. really is. Um, so uh, let's move on because, you know, we have a lot of territory to cover. Uh, what is the Tidewater? What do you mean by Tidewater? I think many yeah. people won't know what that is. I'll cover these a little faster for okay, that's fine. now that we're getting into more familiar territory. The mm-hmm. Tidewater is around the Chesapeake country. Um, it was uh, settled by the younger sons of English gentry. Uh, the, 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 the dominant culture was really formed in the second half of the 1600s, and uh, they were coming on an eminently conservative project. They wished to recreate the English manorial system of the English countryside mm-hmm. circa 1660 uh, in the Chesapeake country. And these are the second and third and fourth sons of English gentry, so they're the ones who weren't going to inherit anything. Mm-hmm. And this was their opportunity, a, a second chance, to actually create a manorial estate. And it was on this sort of enlightenment model of they are the head of the household and everyone else are literally the hands. And mm-hmm. uh, and that there's some kind of social contract between the Lord and his 
and his and his peons, and the Lord will enlightenly run everything for the good of everybody else, and everybody else should know their their place in society. So it's inherently um, hierarchical and conservative, um, and uh, it was quite successful. I mean, through into the early 1700s, they really did reproduce, even though it's a completely different environment. The uh, the the, the genteel world of the English countryside where there weren't really any cities. I mean, uh, you had uh, St. Mary's City in Maryland, the capital, and, uh, and Williamsburg. They were essentially government campuses built mm-hmm. on centralized in- right. models with all kinds of enlightenment symbols, but they were empty when, when things were out of session. Uh, you didn't need cities. You didn't need ports. You mm-hmm. just had ships, ocean-going ships. You just come up the creeks, tie up at your dock and your little self-sufficient universe. You made, you know, you had you had staff, and you tried to operate pretty much um, at lumber operations and and uh, and growing your own food supplies, and you sort of each one was its own little world unto itself. And you exported what you needed to back to London, and imported what you needed from uh, from from your merchants there, and just just as people in the countryside would. In fact, it was often cheaper for you to send stuff to London than it was for people who had to send it overland from some of the uh, some of the English countryside itself. Mm-hmm. So um, it has always remained a place with uh, more emphasis on hierarchy and tradition and not a lot of emphasis on sort of a, a quality of station. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thereafter, if we keep moving chronologically, you have Yankeedom, mm-hmm. which is uh, one of the big superpowers of the 11 nations. It was, of course, founded uh, on the shores of Massachusetts Bay by, by Puritans and radical Calvinists who were coming there um, to uh, create a a, a applied religious utopia. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should say about these people that they were uh, peculiar even in the English and European context. Absolutely. They were very they, odd. They were not, uh, you know, there was, uh, the, the England was, key, you know, cantering and towards the uh, English Civil War. And uh, I mean, if people think that, uh, you know, a- apropos Mitt Romney, that, that Mormons aren't like the rest of us, uh, they should read about the Puritans. Well, no, they the, really weren't like the rest of us. The Mormons also are an eminently Yankee phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're founded by Yankees in Yankeedom, and like, like I'm going to describe with the Puritans, yeah. were um, engaged in a mission to create a more perfect world on Earth. They were mm-hmm. going to create, it, by their own you know, estimation, a more godly society. Mm-hmm. And they were going to do that through um, what we today would call um, active social engineering by public institutions. It was community-based. You know, they were, it's no uh, uh, accident that the Puritan church evolved into the congregational church because it was all about congregations. With each congregation, no bishops and archbishops above them. Mm-hmm. Each town was to maintain its own institutions and town meetings and, and govern itself because the key was to keep the community, and the community was defined as you know, sets of local communities, free. And the freedom of the community and the good of the community um, required uh, individual sacrifice and self-denial, mm-hmm. which are very New England and very Yankee ideas that are considered alien and un-American by many of the other regional cultures. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is if, if everyone got to do whatever they want and exercise personal freedom, while some of you people are going to emerge as tyrants, becoming aristocrats or, or what have you, lording over the rest of us and depriving the community of its freedom. So it was, it's all about the sort of common good trumping the individual's um, freedom of movement and latitude, if necessary, mm-hmm. and indeed that's carried through um, in sort of a secular Puritan mission that, that the Yankees have always been on the front of 
Um, many of our great moral crusades throughout history, from the fight against slavery to the fight against drinking to um, and, so, and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they spread their culture. Yankeedom is much larger than New England. It spread across uh, upstate New York and uh, the Western Reserve of Ohio and on up into most of the upper Great Lakes states. Mm-hmm. Um, those were all founded um, you know, the, in the case of much of upstate New York and Western Reserve of Ohio. Those are places claimed by Massachusetts or Connecticut, and uh, in court settlements, sovereignty was given to New York State and the new state of Ohio, but the New Englanders actually owned the land mm-hmm. and guided um, settlement of it, moving people as entire communities, often led by their congregational minister, um, with uh, le- leaving with blessings and uh, sometimes writing Mayflower-like compacts for what they would do on arrival. Mm-hmm. They, you know, it was a parallel of the uh, of the journey of the of the Winthrop fleet to, to found a new Zion, a light on the hill of Massachusetts. They were doing the same to save the West mm-hmm. uh, for, for Yankeedom and Calvinism. And mm-hmm. this would, there would even be an attempt to do so on the Pacific. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, there many of, you know, the, the religious orthodoxy of Yankeedom collapsed long ago, but not the underlying sense of sort of a mission to improve the world here and the emphasis on sort of, communal good as opposed to individual freedom, which mm-hmm. is very different than some of the other cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, just south of there, uh, New Netherland, uh, the area, the Big Apple, the area around New York City was founded not by the English at all, but by the Dutch and, uh, in the early 1600s and was modeled very much on Amsterdam and the Netherlands at home at the time. And, uh, and in that era, the Netherlands was the most um, it, it's sophisticated state in the Western world. They'd already thrown off a king generations before the king of Spain and created a free trading republic. It was a global trading society, uh, commercial and uh, and uh, multi-ethnic and multi-religious and founded on the notion of extreme notion of tolerance of difference and of freedom of inquiry. I mean, it's no accident that a lot of the, the great revolutionary thinkers of that time period they all published their works in Amsterdam because they would have been arrested at home if they'd done so. Mm-hmm. And uh, Amsterdam in the 1600s was the, 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 the seat of global trade and banking and currency exchange and publishing and uh, a refuge for people from, to, from those uh, oppressed in other um, cultures of Europe to flee to. Mm-hmm. Ditto from the very beginning in New Amsterdam and what became New York City. It had all those characteristics. Mm-hmm. And indeed, New York City today has all of those characteristics. It's remained a place very different from the rest of North America, a global trading society with uh, not a lot of emphasis on sort of great moral issues of the day. I mean, there's toler- extreme tolerance, tolerance of owning slaves, you know, and and no sense of one cultural group being dominant, more of a, uh, a, a commercial free-for-all with um, many points of view uh, and the freedom of inquiry tolerated. It's been a, a, a become a, you know, a world city very, very early on and it, attractive to immigrants for many of these same reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you move a little south from there um, to the Midlands. This is the um, grew out of uh, Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley. This is a culture originally founded by William Penn and English Quakers. Um, in, in short, uh, the Quakers believed in, in people had an inner light and the inherent goodness of humans, and they therefore were much more open to um, and less threatened by the idea of otherness and people coming in because everyone in the, in the end would do right. And so they had an open-door immigration policy 
uh, to a large degree, and that resulted very quickly in a, um, a, a characteristic Midland culture, which is multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious, um, a sort of mosaic, a checkerboard of uh, cultures living side by side um, in neighborhoods or, in, or, or even in farming villages out, on the, uh, out in the agricultural areas, um, where each culture and language is being practiced um, as, as you wish. No attempt. There, there's no common culture. The, the genius of it is that everybody is able to live side by side and don't bother us. Mm-hmm. You know, gover- government should leave us alone and you should leave each other alone. Mm-hmm. Creating it, it, it could be politically apathetic on the big issues of the day um, and, uh, and skeptical of government intervention in a way Yankees never would be, but shared with the Yankees a middle class ethos. Mm-hmm. You know, society is to be structured around the needs of sort of ordinary hardworking people out there in the farms or the, the burgers of the towns. And that uh, culture spread through parts of Pennsylvania and on through uh, stretches of uh, the middle parts of Ohio and uh, the northern part of Indiana and, and on uh, spreading out fan-like into parts of the Midwest, that mm-hmm. sort of middle America we think of in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this um, was a very it was an extraordinarily successful model in terms of um, bringing, uh, I guess what I would call... Uh, reasonably accomplished groups of people to the United States and setting them up. I'm thinking of my own genealogy on my mother's mm-hmm. side. Uh, my, um, let's see, I believe they were Germans in the 1830s who came to Ohio, and there, there were lots of Germans that mm-hmm. came in the 1830s to Ohio. And they lived in a separate German community, a German-speaking community that slowly anglicized over a couple of generations. But, they, you know, they were farmers, and merchants, and uh, they still are. And then, then when they moved further west in my family, they moved to um, Nebraska and then to Kansas. They did the same things, mm-hmm. uh, and they took their churches with them. They were Lutheran churches, and uh, and they went places, and they set places up. I mean, anybody who's been to the Midwest, I mean, one of the mistakes about uh, the Midwest that I think one of the misconceptions uh, people have is that it's homogenous, and it just isn't. Uh, if you, it, it is homogenizing, I would say, but you know, you'll find lots of places where there are uh, Swedes and there are Calvinists, and there are Lutherans, and there are Germans, and uh, um, thanks to Prairie Home Companion, we know a little bit about <laughs> Norwegians now. And, and there really are all these people. You know, in Kansas, for example, there are, there are African-American communities. Nicodemus is one. And it does have this ethos of you go set yourself up there on the prairie, and you tend to your own, and uh, you'll just be fine. And, and, and it, really is a, um, it really is ethnically quite diverse. I just think people in, in the United States don't realize that, that, that it is, there are so many different kinds of people um, in that strip, I was very interested in the map because it does run from Pennsylvania all the way, really, to the Midwest. And I'd never really thought yeah. of it like that. But if you drive across I-80, mm-hmm. you, know, <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of of a piece. You really can tell. You stop one place and it's quite like the one that came before. And uh, I, re- I really like that map. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, and different. I mean, the, I argue there really isn't a Midwest, that there's, you know, the, there's a Midlands Midwest, a Yankee Midwest, and an Appalachian Midwest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have very different characteristics and indeed visitors traveling in these places from the 19th century onwards saw marked differences between you know north of this road and south of this road and mm-hmm. architecture and who was because uh, these parts of the midwest were being settled from separate streams each originating in a different coastal base of one of these regional cultures yeah, no, I, think, I think that's exactly right it is very interesting in that way because if you look at the settlement of uh, places uh, like southern ohio uh, well Places like Ohio in general and Illinois, uh, Iowa, um, Kansas, northern Missouri, um, 
you know, they really are sort of entire separate communities are coming there from usually from Europe and setting up, and they maintain yeah. their they maintain their uh, religions and they on the pen model. You know, they, they maintain their religions and they maintain their ways of life for quite a long time. Uh, yeah, plur- pluralistic Midlander behavior, yeah, which no, is not right. perhaps not true in the Ozarks of Missouri. No, it's not. I've actually lived right. in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I lived, I lived in, in Arkansas, and I can tell you. Well, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and that's a separate <laughs> culture. I mean, the, the, the Midlands attracted – the Midlands, New Netherland, and Yankeedom attracted virtually all of the immigration from the Great Waves to the eastern half of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and immigrants did not essentially go – almost didn't go, period, in the uh, 19th century Great Waves to, the, uh, to Tidewater – and the next two cultures I'm going to mention, Greater Appalachian, the Deep South. So mm-hmm. that instantly creates a very different attitude towards American identity. And, and while we're on it, I mean, the Midlands, you know, it's, it's the ethnic mosaic you're describing is the key. And therefore, the, the genius of the country is its sort of pluralism, right? But it's from Yankeedom that we get this idea that, no, we're a melting pot, an Anglo-Protestant melting pot, mm-hmm. where the ideal, as per Samuel Huntington, who was, you know, Yankee Harvard, was the ideal was that immigrants would come in and assimilate into our culture. Mm-hmm. Thus, you know, Henry Ford in, in Yankee Detroit had in schools for his, his immigrant employees to uh, virtuously, you know, teach them the Protestant work ethic and, the, uh, and, and our ways in hygiene and at the, at the end of, and, and English, and at the end of their um, graduation from these special schools, uh, the families would be invited and they'd, they'd have a stage there and a gigantic paper mache melting pot and the workers would come marching out onto the stage wearing their national costumes, their respective national costumes. They'd walk behind the, the melting pot, and the, their teachers wow. would be up above stirring the melting pot, yeah. literally. And then the uh, workers would come out on the other side to great applause, all wearing identical American, in quote, suits. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was assimilation to, a, to the common culture. And you hear both of those arguments as, you know, here's an example of the dysfunctional argument because you'll hear arguments about what is American identity and what should our attitude towards immigration be and both the pluralistic ethnic mosaic camp and the assimilative um, melting pot camp both argue that those are fundamental values and give all sorts of uh, sightings from history but that yeah they're both American values but from different Americas that one is a Midlander concept embraced yeah. also in New Netherland, another is a Yankee concept. I mean, so and the idea that foreigners, you know, that somehow everyone should be, you know, look like us and act like us is much stronger in the cultures that had no mass immigration in the 19th century in the, yeah. in the southern parts. So you, you see that played out in the Midwestern communities as well, I would imagine. It's, well, it's interesting you mentioned Huntington. He's a good example. I spent um, quite a bit of time, about 10 years, uh, in uh, that Cambridge environment where mm-hmm. he lived. And there was always this notion there that somehow they were a national institution and so they understood the entire nation. But it was just very clear that someone like Huntington did not. He did not understand these other places. He had never been to them. He had never lived in them. He didn't know anyone from them. I mean, his generation, things have changed mm-hmm. there now. Obviously, a lot of people from other parts of the United States. But, you know, the, the Harvard that he lived in his whole life was comprised of people just like him. I mean, you know, my, one of my advisors there used to say they would just, you know, back a truck up to Choate and they'd just haul the kids <laughs> in and, and that was yeah, it. Phil, you know, they Phillips all had Andover gone to the same, Exeter, yeah. right, they had all gone to the same churches and they, you know, the fathers knew each other and they were, you know, they, they thought of themselves as this is America and there really isn't any other America because they hadn't met anyone else. And the provincialism of, um, 
of, of people, of many people there, not everyone there, but the provincialism of someone like Huntington is just strike, is, is really very striking to me as a, as a, as a Midwesterner who is in that context that, you know, th- these things that you hear about the Midwest, they're just bizarre to you, like it's ethnically homogeneous, just bizarre. And, and, and abs- Absolutely, and its effect on our historiography has been profound because in the aftermath of the Civil War, when we were trying to figure out, okay, South has been defeated and supposedly we're going to reconstruct them, you know, to be like us, but to be like Yankees, how do we create a historical narrative of unity for the second half of the 19th century? And so many of our great, you know, classic, you know, Parkman kind of histories were created then by Harvard and yeah, Yale Yankees. Yankees. Yeah, and the, Yankees. The, the whole mythic history that we received and still has echoes in, at least outside of the academy, in what people sort of receive in grade school, is, was a narrative in which um, the, the Puritans and pilgrims arrived in, in Massachusetts and laid the groundwork for America. And, you know, don't pay too much attention to Jamestown or those yeah. fishermen who are already living in the main settlements. Right. And, you know, forget the other regional cultures that, that it springs out of the first Thanksgiving and all of that imagery. <laughs> yeah, that, it, I mean, total bollocks, right? Total yeah. bollocks. It doesn't, Thanksgiving is and they, funny. They even, um, you know, changed quotes and things that they've since been, you know, caught doing and yeah. to aggrandize their, um, their history. And, and they, not only were they talking about their region, they were aggrandizing their own gene pool who were involved in these right. things. Yeah, no, it's so, yes, I mean, what you're saying is true and it has a long history. That's, you know, it's the, it's the, the Yankee project having, you know, the, the, the early Puritans had enormous emphasis and respect for intellectual achievement and education. Their leaders weren't aristocrats. They were the educated people, mm-hmm. and that's why they set up Harvard really early. Mm-hmm. But that also meant it, had the, it was the intellectual capital of the country. And at a time in the late 19th century where the Yankees thought they'd finally vanquished their foes mm-hmm. and, and would have control of the country again as they – as they hadn't had since John Adams' presidency, that here was a chance to, you know, save the country for Yankee Calvinist values and that historical project that's still with us. And yeah, yeah, like you say, right up into our lifetimes, many of the great historians out of that universe still kind of do have those odd cultural blinders sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it is is always remarkable to me when I go back east and and I talk to, you know, my my relatives, my wife's brothers and, 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 uh, and aunts and uncles and things like this to talk to them about the Midwest. And, you know, they're, they're one generation removed from the Midwest, but they've been completely Yankeeized now. And they, they, see, they see the world from that place. And, yeah. and, and I don't, uh, which isn't to say I don't agree with them about, you know, I agree with them 90% of the time. But it, it is, I always feel very, I don't know how to say it, but I feel, I don't feel exactly at home there. You know, I you feel I go a cultural back, gap at yeah, work. I do. <laughs> I just really feel it at work. And I, you know, I just can't quite put my finger on it, but it's a, it's definitely there. Um, and also the provincialism was very striking to me when I, when I first went back East and I, I saw it there. Not, not so much in California. I, I went to graduate school in California and I, I felt that it was much more similar to the Midwest in that way because they, uh, they don't just talk about celebrating diversity. They live it. Whereas right. I think on the East Coast they talk about <laughs> celebrating diversity, but they don't live it. They don't. They don't have it. So well, on the Yankee part, there's still that notion of quietly of assimilation somewhere in there. I mean, yeah. that in small town Maine, for instance, I mean you're you're quietly expected as newcomers to come and start, you know, figure out what's going on around sure. you and behave accordingly. You yeah. know, that's that's just kind of the default assumption of our culture. Right. Um, which, yeah, is totally different than right, other parts of the right. country. I mean, not, not to beat a dead horse, but, uh, you know, my wife's uh, family is from Northampton, Massachusetts, and there's just no more, quote-unquote, enlightened <laughs> liberal place. Uh, and, you know, we live here in Iowa City. 
But you go to Northampton, and if you were a foreigner, you were from Mars, you would say, these are the most homogeneous people I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> they all drive Priuses. They all look exactly the same. They all went to the same schools. They all have the same tastes. There are no, there are no black people, and there are very few Hispanics. But yeah, yeah. these people are, you know, uh, the, the sort of paragon of American enlightenment. Um, but, but it, you know, it's it just, uh, you know, not, not to, you know, they're fine people. I really love them, and I love going back there. In fact, we're moving there. But it, it just to me, um, you know, I tell people where I went to high school, uh, you know, this is in Kansas, that we had a very large number of Vietnamese people who went to my high school. Mm-hmm. And they look at me like, how? I'm like, you hear the boat people? <laughs> that's where they went because we took them. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's where they went because we were used to this. You know, churches sponsored them and they came to Kansas and, they, and we educated them. And now they're citizens of our place, just like we, you know, came here, you know, many hundreds of years ago and set up shop or like the Hmong community in, in, in Minnesota, similar sort of thing. Uh, I don't know. Just one of the things about Midwesterners I have noticed, and you can kind of hear it in my voice, uh, is um, a certain defensiveness. You know, we, yeah. <laughs> we, we feel a little bit hard done here by the late 20th century. Um, and and uh, so, so I apologize for that. But anyway, I definitely want to get to the um, last two or three or four regions that we have to deal with. We're almost running out of time. So let's talk sure. a little bit about the Deep South. Well, quickly, yeah. So uh, the Deep South was founded a couple of generations after uh, the Puritans arrived in Massachusetts Bay by an entirely different group of people. And uh, the Deep South is the other superpower that throughout uh, history since the U.S. was created has faced off against Yankeedom, uh, forming coalitions on you know, almost every major internally deci- divisive uh, event we've had has featured one coalition mm-hmm. led by Yankeedom versus another in the Deep South including the Civil War. So the Deep South was settled by the sort of antithesis of the Yankees. It was English planters from the uh, uh, plantation island of Barbados uh, in the late 1600s who were grafting into the Deep Southern Lowlands a fully formed West Indian uh, slave society. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike the Tidewater, where you know the, the, the English gentry in the Tidewater um, were trying to create manorial feudalism, they couldn't find anyone to play the role of peasants. They started bringing indentured servants, and over you know eighty years that didn't work. They segued right into eventually uh, full-on slavery. But in the Deep South, it was it happened generations later. It was a fully formed horrific gang system. I mean, Barbados uh, at the time, and this is in the 1600s when slavery was you know existed all over the place. Uh, Barbados was seen as absolutely horrifying by its English contemporaries for its um, uh, uh, its uh, disregard for human life. You know, where it was cheaper to just work people to death because sugar was so incredibly mm. valuable than it was to conserve and take care of your enslaved labor supply. And wow. uh, they became staggeringly wealthy. They were the the, um, the the nouveau riche of that time period who were coming back to England and just buying titles and yeah. estates and and. So are, as John Locke wrote of them, the Barbadans endeavor to rule all. Mm-hmm. And the Barbadans came to the Deep South and recreated a it – was, it was originally called Carolina in the West Indies. And mm-hmm. it was a – just happened to be on the mainland. And that um, a racially – you know, a, a, a slave society that uh, came and developed thereafter a uh, racially based formal caste system um, backed by law and extra legal violence uh, has been with us all the way up into living memory, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a, you know, not to beat on the Deep South, but it is a rather horrific legacy, which mm-hmm. um, is hard to square with American democracy. And the reason it was possible is because these Barbados planters were coming and embracing republicanism, but the republicanism of the ancient world, of yeah. classical Greece and Rome, exactly. which were yeah. slaveholding states in which a small oligarchy 
had the privilege of practicing democracy and everybody else's, you know, vast majority of the population's natural born lot was to be enslaved and that that was perfectly normal. And in fact, they believed and their great intellectual leaders argued right up into the 1860s that that is the only way a republic could survive. This is the virtuous example handed down to us by the ancients. And indeed, the, you know, many things have changed about the Deep South, but underlying it, it is still a society which is structured and whose leaders invoke policies um, which... Uh, have society designed around the needs of the oligarchy, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And that somehow, if the oligarchy gets to do whatever it wants, don't worry, that'll be best for all of you. And that's the opposite, the antithesis of the Yankee model. I mean, you couldn't find two greater opposites than those two really on those grounds. Mm -hmm. One's about sort of individual denial, and you know, you're in the classic Yankee frame, if you're, you know, incredibly wealthy, you're supposed to be a, a little bit quietly ashamed of it, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, don't drive a flashy car and uh, and show it off because somehow that's considered right. Uh, right. naff. Right. Whereas in the deep south, that is absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. So I mean, those those are different dominant cultural prescriptions mm -hmm. uh, on on you know fabulously wealthy people living in both areas. Mm -hmm. Those columns on the plantation manor houses. Yes, yeah, like so yeah. Athens, reference. Georgia. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the, the, in the Tidewater, you saw that too in Jefferson's yeah, House. Jefferson, it was yeah. an enlightenment model yeah. where you were, you were the gentleman aristocrat and there's somehow there was a social contract between you, the head, and your hands yeah. out there. Not in the Deep South. I right. mean, there was no, at no time was there a pretension towards that. And nor, you know, when Samuel Huntington talked about how the American creed that holds us all together has to do with the Calvinist Protestant work ethic. Nonsense. Yeah. I mean, you will never find in the deep southern uh, you know, uh, oligarchies and, and slaveholders uh, a great emphasis on how they felt they needed to work all the time. They were happy to be uh, involved in leisure and saw no problem with that, mm -hmm. whereas the elite in Yankeedom was constantly haunted by the idea that they stop working for a yeah. moment. You know, that yeah. Their spa towns, when they'd go off on vacation and enjoy themselves, no, they were really at a at a spa town for their health. You right. could even admit to taking a vacation for much of the 19th century. Right. No, that's quite right. So yeah. haunted by the notion that they would not be one of God's elect if they weren't um, busy every minute and taking their money and, you know, investing it in building libraries or, you know, endowing Harvard or whatever right. it was, you know, had, had to be busy at all times right. doing things. Ah, sort of the, what a curse. assumption, <laughs> right? So, but, but, you know, the, the Deep South, Absolutely not. You know that was that. You know, that was not emphasized. And final, the final culture, Greater Appalachia, um, that was also not a priority there. But it, it was founded by because the going back to the Midlands and the early Quakers had this open immigration policy. Um, one of the groups that came in the largest numbers and settled in the back country behind behind uh, the Midlands and spread across the Appalachian Mountain Range and on into uh, great stretches of southern Ohio, much of Indiana, southern Illinois, southern Missouri, northeastern Arkansas, and on to the, uh, into east you know, Texas and the hill country, a big sprawling greater Appalachia. This was founded by um, people from the, uh, the, the war-torn borderlands of the British Isles, mm -hmm. from Oland, Scotland, the English marshes, and Ulster. Um, people, lowland Scots, who had been brought from the lowlands of Scotland to Ulster to uh, basically because they'd been living for centuries in this, this war-torn region of uh, anarchy where you couldn't count on the rule of law to protect you and there's constant violence and you've got to protect yours, uh, your, you and your kin 
uh, from the outside, and there's no sense in investing too much in long-standing institutions because everything's going to be destroyed next week when war breaks out again. <laughs> you keep your wealth in a uh, your pastoral society. You keep your wealth in herds of animals mm-hmm. because you can move them and you know get away from things. Whereas your your crops will just be burned and eaten by the next passing army. I mean, this is in sort of lampooning form for for, but that's sure. essentially a a a warrior culture from an incredibly difficult place. Uh, and because of the environment it grew in, the emphasis was on individual sovereignty and individual freedom, that there be as few encumbrances on you as a person as possible. Mm-hmm. Again, kind of the opposite of Yankeedom, that yep. you, you'd be free to do those things, and a, uh, and a culture that uh, was comfortable on the frontier and comfortable with uh, fighting off challengers, and be they... Uh, Irish Cairn guerrillas in Ulster, or uh, the Indians of the uh, of the Appalachian Mountain Range, sure. um, you would be able to hold uh, in as as a a bo- another violent borderland. Uh, you would be able to hold the frontier and uh, and and move on when necessary, and keep your wealth in a form that was mobile, and um, be attracted to uh, areas that were um, facilitated a pastoral lifestyle where you could move. Uh, uh, herds of animals around mm-hmm. and huge for for the uh, 1700s the number of people who moved there were just staggering it was one of the greatest immigration wave of all yep. and spread down that mountain range and uh, has created a very different culture both in the midwest that we've been discussing but uh, one across that vast region that you know it's since been lampooned by you know hollywood and pop culture is mm-hmm. you know hillbillies and rednecks and nascar people mm-hmm. but it's a um, it's a very um, proud culture a libertarian strand that's extremely strong, but also a a resentment of anybody trying to come in and lord over mm-hmm. uh, people, and that meant the they were hostile to the Yankees and their ridiculous moralism of you know trying to tell them <laughs> oh, you can't drink on Sunday, and and meddling in things out of our way. You know what do you mean individual self denial? You know you people are insufferable, and also of the uh, of the rigid hierarchical world of the. Planters of the Deep South and the gentleman in the Tidewater was mm-hmm. also not to their liking. So what's you know we talk about the South. What's forgotten is that during the the lead up to the Civil War and indeed during the Civil War, Appalachia by and large took the Union side. I mean the reason yeah. there's West Virginia is the people right. of Appalachian Virginia seceded and joined the Union and fought for the Union. Mm-hmm. Kentucky didn't leave the Union. The eastern part of Tennessee tried to secede just like Western Virginia um, from the rest of uh, North Carolina and become a separate state. Ditto with the highlands of Alabama. We're going to be the free state of Winston. In fact, more people from the Appalachian states, um, the Appalachian territory served in the Union Army by far than in the Confederate one. They Hmm. fled and joined units and fought under the banners of their own states. Hmm. It's only during Reconstruction when the Yankees showed up um, in this sort of Iraq-like project that we've defeated you militarily on the battlefield. Now we're just going to show up and remake you in you know a year or two into being like us. Mm-hmm. That did not go over well in Appalachia at all, mm-hmm. um, including you know they, they had not fought to free the slaves. They'd fought because they couldn't stand the uh, the oligarchs um, back in the coastal areas that usually controlled their state governments. Um, so they, mm-hmm. they that's where the the real Dixie coalition, which is still with us today, formed between Appalachia, Tidewater, and the Deep South becoming one block, whereas where they were not. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, we've been through, I think, 
all of them ex- uh, in well, the Well, we haven't talked about two uh, that are to come later, and that is the Far West and Left Coast, I think. Right. So briefly, the Left Coast came next. Uh, that's the Pacific Fringe, a Chile-shaped nation uh, stretching from about Monterey, <laughs> California, all the way up to Juneau, Alaska, and hugging the coastal plain on that side of the mountains. Uh, it, is, uh, it was founded by two groups of people, in essence, and became a hybrid culture of the two. And those were Yankees arriving by sea who settled in the towns. And again, these were the Yankees were under this, you know, many were them were arriving on this mission to save the Pacific for for to be create a new New England on the Pacific and to save it for the Calvinist work ethic and so on. And uh, they founded places like you know Berkeley and mm-hmm. and uh, and Stanford. And uh, their project, though, was although that sort of utopian idea of kind of creating a more perfect society, you know, nice California dream kind of thing, mm-hmm. stayed. Uh, the Yankee project was overwhelmed by a second group of settlers, uh, first attracted by the gold rush, but moving on from there, uh, track coming generally overland by wagon across the horrors of the far west, um, where there was no food and water roads, and it was incredibly remote, and arriving on the left coast, and generally settling uh, in the countryside. And they tended to be from Appalachian parts of the Midwest, and brought a, uh, a, a emphasis on individual freedom and self-actualization. So you have a utopian mission bonded with um, trying to seek you know, your, your, your individual uh, potential, and uh, that's become a very fecund combination. Mm-hmm. It's no accident that the left coast is the home to virtually every high-tech company you can think of that dominates the world today. Amazon, Google, Twitter, mm-hmm. Facebook, Microsoft, all of Silicon Valley's there. Apple, I mean, they're all there, and I don't think that that's really an accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's left coast since its foundation because of that shared Yankee tradition and utopian purpose has been Yankeedom's greatest ally uh, over the past 150 years, lining up with Yankeedom on every single issue yeah. and political item ever, um, and, mm-hmm. and set off dramatically in voting habits from the interiors of its own states, mm-hmm. which belong to the Far West, West, which was the last of the Euro-American nations to be founded because the interior West, we're talking about from the, around the 100th meridian on to reach the, the coastal mountain ranges, was such an incredibly hostile place in the late 19th century when it was finally colonized. It was remote. It was arid. It was high altitude and cold. Um, and uh, in order to survive there you had successfully you had to have access to huge amounts of capital generally um and therefore it could only be settled by and large uh through the interventions of large for the federal government or large corporations located on the coastal nations railroad companies mm-hmm. uh deep earth mining companies the building of irrigation infrastructure and dams mm-hmm. and so forth and so it was you know the, the railroad companies built the railroads first and then guided and controlled settlement. They gave out the land grants and created the towns and often recruited entire boatloads of people in Europe with advertising and special ships and rates to, mm-hmm. to colonize their area. You know, it, was, it wasn't the other way around. But the, the, the thing was that because they were sort of dependent, it's kind of like Avatar. You know, they arrive on Pandora and they have to you know, ride around in the back of this giant piece right. of industrial capital you know, tearing up the forest. Yeah. You know, that dependent on it and resentful of that dependence and they were exploited as a internal resource colony through much of our history mm-hmm. in all sorts of you know detailed in the book but all sorts of awful ways and you know railroad rates being set up to keep the region always in a in a state of dependency on the coasts and that um 
resentment of both the federal government and outside uh, capital has has resonated in politics, and the, the emphasis was on the outside capitalists in the uh, up until the 1940s. You know, the anaconda coppers of the world. Uh, it was you know a lot of big populist politicians came out of the region. Uh, more recently, it's joined in a sort of alliance with the uh, with the Dixie Coalition because they've emphasized the resentment of the federal government's intrusion on things. Mm-hmm. So that's the far west, which extends on up into much of uh, interior British Columbia, most of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, um, those, those parts of Canada. And there's a final nation, which is either the oldest or the newest nation, depending on how you yeah. look at it, I call First Nation. It's mm-hmm. uh, up there in the little parts of Alaska, but um, much of northern Canada. Uh, and Greenland. It's an area much larger than the contiguous United States, um, and it is uh, a, a region where the um, original Aboriginal inhabitants or Native Americans or Inuit-speaking people um, generally never signed treaties with anybody else giving away their land, and in recent decades that's been recognized in Canada's courts, and the Kingdom of Denmark has always been cognizant of that, and they've therefore been gaining through Supreme Court decisions and decisions of the Danish Parliament, which controls Greenland, um, uh, enormous autonomy over their own affairs and what happens in their region that borders on sovereignty. Uh, Nunavut, the territory of Canada, of course, is dominated by Inuit-speaking people and is a, a, a sort of um, ter- a nation-state of sorts. And Greenland is standing on the verge of full independence and is the only part of all of North America where an indigenous language is the language of state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, a fascinating place I've been able to visit, but that's, uh, you're, if you ever wondered, you know, what if we hadn't um, wiped out, in quotes, the Indians of North America mm-hmm. and they still had control of affairs, what sort of solutions and what sort of uh, cultural take would they have had on 21st century challenges of the world? Um, we may be able to find out because yep, there it is. Greenland, these other places, they're about to do so. And they're, yeah. Greenland, nobody owns land. Uh-huh. I mean, everybody's house is built on communal land. Yeah. You can't, wow. can't own it any more than you can own the air, for wow. instance. Wow. And yet they're negotiating with mining companies and you know, preparing to, to exist, hopefully on their own terms with the outside world. So it'll be fascinating to watch. Yeah. And there, there you are. There are the nations. Uh, Colin, that's amazing. This is a, a really an excellent book, and I congratulate you on writing it, and I thank you for writing it. I hope that uh, every American and everybody interested in America reads it. I think there's a ton of insight in it, and I know that I learned a lot about my own misperceptions as to what I am and uh, where I have lived. Much of what you write in the book is very resonant to me. As I say, I've, written, I've lived in almost all of these regions. I have not lived in, um, I have not lived in New France, and I, I have not lived in First Nation, but I've lived everywhere else in the United States, and it, it really does ring quite, quite, really very, very true to me. Um, we've taken up so much of your time, I, I don't want to take up any more, but I do want to have the opportunity to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? I wish I could say I had a new book project fully formed. I'm still... Um gestating on what I would like to commit to, you know, a multi-year project to next. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, I'm still, uh, you know, using this paradigm to analyze uh, and talk about current events as they unfold. We had a presidential election coming and the regional paradigm um, offers uh, fascinating insights Mm -hmm. on various things that happen. All the way down, for instance, today's mission is uh, the Ohio uh, vote which uh, repealed the uh, ban on communal bargaining yeah, right. by yeah. state workers. Uh-huh. Fascinating because Ohio has is divided between three nations. It's really interesting looking at the voting patterns across those. So I'm doing a lot of that uh, these days in the short term and still thinking about what my next book project might be. That's refreshing, actually, that 
you're thinking about what to do. Yeah. <laughs> almost everybody I interview says, oh, I have this project. It's almost fully formed. Here it is. Um, so anyway, but anyway, thanks again for uh, uh, writing the book. It's a terrific book. And uh, Colin Woodard, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Colin Woodard about his new book, American Nations, a history of the 11 rival regional cultures of North America. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.